Amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Leora and the little Leoraettes. That was adorable. I don't know if you noticed, um, but Steve no longer has kids that age. But he was sitting right there, <laughs> just a big old kid himself, I guess. That was, was adorable. Well, Merry Christmas. Here we are, the fourth Sunday in December. And we've spent each of them looking at Jesus, not just his birth or his arrival, but the significance of it all. And the series we've called Dwell, which is a pretty packed word. We've looked at different aspects of it. We looked at the beginning, God is in the waiting. This anticipation, promise, and a wait. We know what that's like. We looked at God with us in the details. It's amazing the prophecies, specific prophecies, that point toward the birth of Christ. If you went through the Old Testament and tried to connect the dots, I don't think you could guess exactly what was going to happen, but that's what prophecy's like. When he was born, you look back and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It all makes sense. We looked at God with us in the celebration. God loves celebration. Sometimes we say, well, we, we don't like religion, but you know what? God loves ceremonies and celebrations. He, he gave a bunch of them, and he's in them. In fact, for many of them, as he wrote in the Old Testament, it, he was saying, come to my house and love a party. Bring your stuff, the stuff you've saved up. Come to Jerusalem. Come to the temple and celebrate. And they did. This week, we're going to look at God with us in the everyday. We know that he was born as a baby. We know that he lived as a man and died as a man, rose again and ascended. And then what? We're just waiting around for him to come back? Or is there more to it? So we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah that I think a lot of people know, even if they don't know it's from the Bible. And if you know Handel's Messiah, you already know these words anyway, but maybe in a little older English. But let's take a look at it. Steve read it for us. Let's read it one more time. Isaiah 9, 6. To us a child is born. So what? Children are born every day. Isaiah's writing at a time when the world is falling apart. Israel's being invaded, and the end looks like it's nigh. And Isaiah has a message of hope. He's saying, don't look around at what the world is doing. Don't look how the world laughs at you and mocks you and is trying to destroy you. It's not about you. It's about this. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Wow. At this point, when the government is on the shoulders of ferocious Assyrians and, you know, mean Babylonians... And it looks like these empires are just going to attack each other and kill everybody in between. God says, no, there's one coming. And the government, the rulership, will be his. And then he gives us a hint about who he is going to be. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. First thing you think of when you think of 
the government of the earth, do you think of wonderful counselor? No, we, we think of military might. The first thing he wanted us to know is that he will be called a wonderful counselor. Oh, and also a mighty God, don't worry. He's not a marshmallow. His counseling and his love will be backed up by ferocity. Mighty God, everlasting Father. Hmm. That could also be said, the Father of eternity. The source of everything. Outside of time. Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. The idea of Prince... You know, it's not what we mostly grew up with, that with our British royal family, the prince is just the guy waiting for his mom to die so he can take over. <laughs> no, the, the idea of prince at this time is, was a powerful position. It had an authority and a purpose. And a prince of peace, well, that's good. That is good, prince of peace. And then he goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I don't know if you've ever had dealings in court. They do their best. They do. I'm not sure justice is always what we see. Justice. From a God who is outside everything looking in, he can see the whole picture. And he brings justice and righteousness. And then he ends with a punchline. This might happen. God hopes this is going to happen. If you get enough good people together, we'll make this happen. If you pray hard enough, maybe it'll happen. He ends with the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The Lord there is his name. Hosts means the heavenly armies of angelic beings. This is not a wish. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, a, a maybe. He ends this phrase by saying, all the power in the universe will bring this about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we celebrate that. We celebrate the birth of that child and the joy it brought others, and the hope it brought others, and the suffering that it brought others. We celebrate the child that is born. Let's just look at his titles, though, for a second. Because some of them are kind of weird. We looked at them briefly. But I just want to use some other scripture to back them up. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. This is what the wonderful counselor is like, an important detail. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he was tempted in everything, but he wasn't confused with pride and, 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 and arrogance and selfishness and those things that cloud our thinking. He was tempted, but he had a clear, holy mind to deal with it. He was tempted in every way, like we are. But one who with every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, this is what we get to do. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in a time of need. If you're looking for a counselor, I would go with that. That looks pretty good on a business card. The eternal God who also chose to live as a human and experienced the same difficulties that you and I experienced but wasn't blinded by sin during that time. And now has ascended to a throne, which according to Isaiah is just going to get more and more powerful as his kingdom gets bigger and bigger. That's a pretty good counselor to talk to. I'd say that's wonderful. A wonderful counselor. Let's look into Colossians. Colossians 2, 9 to 10. Is he mighty God? I mean, sometimes if we look at the life of Jesus, we have to question it. He kind of got pushed around a bit. He got taken advantage of. He got betrayed. Would a mighty God allow that? Could he have stopped that if he'd wanted to, if he was really mighty? Well, yeah. But that was peanuts compared to what he did do. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God, who is outside of time, who is outside of creation, dwelt completely in that human body. That's pretty good. That's, that's pretty mighty. That's God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, a reminder, yep, he didn't do it just to be nice. He did it to take over, to bring righteousness and justice and get rid of sin and suffering. And he will, and he will. Let's look at the next one, Colossians 1, 16 to 17. The next one, where are we at? Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity. You could say it either way. Could that baby that was born in a manger and soiled himself and spat up and had gas and grew up and had, I don't know, did he have acne? We don't know, but you know, he went through everything we've been through. Is he eternal? How could that be? Is he the father of eternity? Did he bring everything else into being? It's strange, but this is what we're told in Colossians 1.16. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. No one has power unless he allows it. No one has authority unless he allows it. And he is before all things, and in all things hold together. In him all things hold together. You physicists out there, that's a, that, that, there's your answer. So much in science we can't really explain. And we've figured out all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. But don't get into quantum physics unless you've got a life jacket. It's bizarre stuff. But it's okay because it's all held together by the living God. And we will all have a PhD in physics once we see his face. We'll get it. We'll understand it. And we will be excited. 
And one more, Romans 5, 10 and 4. We talk a lot about peace because the angels talked about peace because he's called Prince of Peace. But do we know what peace is? For us, peace is usually the end of a conflict. If we can stop people from killing each other, we say they're at peace. But we know, we know that the peace that ended World War I really started World War II. We know that the peace that ended the Korea War decades ago still has people pointing guns at each other across the no man's land. We stopped the killing, but we didn't establish peace because peace, as God describes it, is reconciliation. It's bringing everything back together the way it was meant to be. Peace is not avoiding conflict. It's living a life without conflict. And this Prince of Peace, we're told this. If while we were enemies, remember, it wasn't our fault. We're born in sin. We're born imperfect. We're born missing something. We're born enemies of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, there's the Prince of Peace in action. He comes along to a holy father and a broken humanity and says, I'm going to get you guys back together. We're going to reconcile it. We're going to bridge this gap. We're going to take care of this. We're going to unbreak whatever's broken. We're going to bring peace in this relationship. Reconciled to God by the death of his son, but that's only the beginning in this passage. Much more. I mean, we celebrate the reconciliation. We're glad our sins are taken care of. We're glad that we get to stand in the presence of God boldly and chat with the wonderful counselor and ask him for stuff. That is amazing. But what we read is there's something much more. Being reconciled by his death is only the beginning. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We don't talk about that part enough. Let's just break it down. Let's go to the next slide. It breaks down the, the, those two verses a bit more. It talks about we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Yes, we celebrate that. We know that. We get that. We can't wait till that's really complete and all sin is destroyed. But much more shall we be saved by his life. Jesus, who was nailed to a cross and died to take care of everyone's sin, has more in store. Much more in store. And it won't be through his death, it will be through his life. The resurrected, mighty God of the universe, sitting on a throne, wants to give more than he gave us when he died. He wants to do more for us than he did for us when he was on the cross. Much more, he wants to continue to save us by his life. It's a strange verse. It's a, it's a verse that we look at and go, oh, what? Hmm? There's another verse like that, though. Always catches me off guard. Haven't begun to really understand it. No, we're going to look at another verse in, in, in Romans first. Romans 8. Just to understand this a little bit deeper. Romans 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead 
dwells in you. I mean, we're looking at dwelling this whole month. We look at the birth of Christ where he dwelt as a man. We, he tabernacled among us. He lived with us and he experienced human temptation and human suffering. He dwelt among us. But we're also told that the Spirit, not only the one who lived like a man, but resurrected, dwells in you. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're not just celebrating the life of an amazing human being, someone who changed history, changed philosophy, changed politics. I mean, you, there, there's hardly any field on earth of study you can look at that you, that you can't go back to what Jesus taught and did and see his impact on it in a relatively short life, in a small country. He had amazing influence. But he dwells in you. What he did in his lifetime was only the beginning because he dwells in you. Everybody? Okay, let's be careful. All humans are created in God's image. We all have the capacity for love and joy and peace. We all, to some degree, demonstrate our creator. But this is getting a little more specific. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Where does God want to dwell? Where he's known. He dwelt in a temple because the temple had a lot of symbolism that showed who he was. And he wants to dwell in humanity, but he's not saying, yeah, whatever, whoever you are. He's saying, I can only dwell in a place that looks like me. And anyone who comes to the point in their life where they recognize the influence of sin on them, they recognize their own guilt, and then they turn their eyes to Jesus in the manger and then Jesus on the cross and say, he did that for me. He died for my sins. God looks at that person and says, yes, I can live in that. I can live in a person who knows the conflict and accepts love above it all, accepts my love above their own self-doubt, accepts my love and power above their own fears. That's the person I can live in. That looks like me. Because if we were living in pride, if we were living in establishing our own kingdom, it just doesn't look like God. We can't count on him dwelling in us for that. But the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Another verse that is a little bit scary in some ways is something that Jesus said in John. And it's the kind of verse you can read over and over and over and over, and then one day it hits you like a two-by-four. And we've looked at it before, but John 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. I don't think any of the disciples believed him up to that point, that we'll be better off without you. I mean, again, just imagine Jesus living in your house. Throw away the aspirin, you know. Don't buy groceries. You got a crumb, Jesus will make a feast. It'd be kind of handy. Nevertheless, I tell you, 
the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Again, we, we, we can imagine how wonderful it would be to have Jesus with us, but he says, I've got more. I want to do more. I want to give you more. And so I'm going to go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus believed that our lives would be better and more godly and more productive by his spirit living in us than by his body standing beside us. I have barely begun to scratch the surface of that. Just about every day I think it'd be better if Jesus was actually here doing stuff for me, you know. Because I haven't really started to understand that verse. That Jesus is dwelling in us. That Jesus dwells in us. Show us the next slide. This is where we are. The child is born. It's amazing the child is born. And we know where we're going that the king will reign. Isaiah gives us both of those pictures. We see them throughout Scripture. A child is born and a king will reign. But you and I aren't back in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and we're not yet at the point where Jesus on the throne is ruling the universe with justice and righteousness. We're in the middle somewhere, which sounds like we're a bit lost, but according to Jesus, it's actually a better place to be because in the middle, the Spirit dwells in you. He abides in you, that baby, that man, that future king. He's in your every day. Now, we have a choice to recognize it or not. I mean, if you wanted to, you could live your whole life submitting to the government of Zimbabwe, but it wouldn't do you any good. They don't have any power here. No offense against Zimbabwe, just the first name that come to mind. To live in the kingdom is to make choices. To have the Spirit dwelling in us means that we're willing to look like God, be like, act like God, do the things that God would do, want God in our lives, want God to dwell in his people, the redeemed who know the importance of the cross. Christmas is wonderful, and we've turned it into a huge festival around the world. You know, some people don't like that. God likes to celebrate. But we need to understand the reason why it's so great. That this incredible baby, this promised child, had a lot resting on his shoulders, including the kingdom of the universe. So the birth was amazing. It was hinted at, it was pointed to, it was celebrated, and some people feared it. But his spirit dwells in us to change our lives. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it involves suffering. Sometimes Christmas is hard. If you've lost a loved one lately, you're separated from people you love, 
financial problems. Christmas, for some people, can be difficult. Yeah. Nothing out of the control of the God of the universe. But we do take time, regardless of the difficulties, to recognize He's here. Emmanuel, He is God among us. He's God with us. And He is God in us. Because He dwells in you. Father, we then thank you once again for the birth of Christ, for the life of Christ, for the death and resurrection, and for the spirit that you have given us, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of eternity. Thank you for the joy. We thank you for the giggles of little children that will light up our days. We thank you for the urging of your spirit that will light up our world. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.